You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sunset Series, which is a program of Tribe Tel Aviv, bringing you quality programming in Tel Aviv to young adults in English language programming for uh, Olim and all those who are interested. And tonight in our Zoom session, we are we have two special guests. Uh, the topic will be an Israeli-Palestinian dialogue for moving forward uh, with Suleiman Khatib and Rabbi Yehuda Cohen. And it's nice to have you both here tonight. Uh, Suleiman, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda, it's great to have you here. We know each other from the old country uh, a number of years ago, one of Rabbi Yehuda's first trips to Israel uh, that I was leading with MJE and Israelite. And uh, Yehuda stayed. It took me a little while to get here, but I followed you eventually. Great to have you both here. Let me tell you a little about our speakers. Suleiman Khatib is a founder and director of the Combatants for Peace organization, uniting former Palestinian prisoners and former Israeli soldiers seeking nonviolent solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. At 14, Suleiman was sentenced to 15 years in prison for attacking an Israeli soldier. While jailed, he began to learn history, Hebrew, English, and about other conflicts and peace activists throughout the world. He currently lives in Ramallah and is an active member of various programs aiming to promote a peaceful solution to the conflict. In 2017, Suleiman was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen, who he'll be dialoguing with, is a West Bank Jewish peace activist and educator. As a leader in the vision movement, he works to empower students to become thought leaders and active participants in the current chapter of Jewish history. As a founder of Alternative Action, he organizes grassroots dialogue sessions for Palestinian and Israeli activists seeking to transcend competing one-sided narratives in favor of a more scientific analysis of the factors forcing both peoples into the conflict. Suleiman and Rabbi Huda, it's great to have you here. And uh, Shanna Fold, our uh, host for tonight, will be bringing you together in dialogue. And I turn it over to Shanna. people who don't have your experience, and it's so valuable because you can read about something, you can hear about something in your community, but nothing beats hearing from hearing the words come out of somebody's mouth. So I think this is going to be very meaningful. Now, what we're going to do first, and I didn't say thank you to Rabbi Yehuda HaKohen, who I met years ago before I moved to Israel and who made a very large impression on me with his out-of-the-box thinking. He has ideas that I have never heard before, and he stands by them very strongly. And I'm very excited for our community to get to finally hear a different perspective than the usual perspectives and ideas that they're fed on a day-to-day basis. So for me, this is very exciting to talk about something different. Now, Suli and Yehuda are each going to have five minutes to tell their own stories. I am from New York. I'm from South Queens. I'm very tough, and I will have mercy on no one tonight. So you will each get five minutes, and I will cut you off when you are nearing four minutes and 30 seconds. And, um, and then we'll move on to the next one. And then we will begin with our four question 
for with our four questions that we have tonight before heading to a question and answer where everyone will have an opportunity to ask their questions in the chat. Okay, so we will have, who's going to be up first? Well, Yehuda or Sule, who's going first? It's your choice. You're fine. Okay, you spoke first, so you're up. Give your, I'm going to give you five minutes on the clock, starting now. Uh, Shana, you meant me or Yehuda? Yes, you. I, uh, Sule, okay. I would like you to start five minutes. Um, tell okay. us about yourself. Tell us your story. Okay, thank you uh, for having us here and for inviting us. And thanks, Yehuda, for connecting me with this uh, beautiful group. Um, as you know, like it's not easy to tell the story in five minutes, but uh, in a very short cut, my name is Suleiman Khatib, and uh, as uh, uh, Jonathan said, I live in Ramallah currently, but my family live in Hizma, which is uh, 10 minutes from Jerusalem. That's where I am from. Um, my background, very like shortly, I... Uh, um, I was uh, I was part of the Palestinian resistance, and uh, I guess here I don't know if you have Palestinian speakers before or not. But uh, since we talk about multiple narratives, and you mentioned that uh, Yehuda inspired you by thinking out of the box, and the same, actually, I have the same story with him as well. Actually, so just to say, we will mention this later, maybe. Uh, myself, I <coughs> grew up around Jerusalem, and <coughs> I participated in. You know, like, um, like my people still maybe in that mindset that the only way to free our homeland from uh, the enemy is by using arms struggle. Uh, I was 14, so I did everything I could when I was 14. Uh, like I attacked two Israelis, I did a cocktail military, throwing stones, throwing Palestinian flag, and many other things in that line, which is uh, basically at, at the time, like uh, I'm 48, in my time, in my school, uh, politics were, uh, was illegal in the school. Or to say the word Palestine was, you can get arrested for like drawing Palestine flag. Uh, very short, I was arrested when I was 14 and five months uh, by the Israeli army. So I was the youngest political prisoner uh, for a while. Uh, I was sentenced 15 years when I became 15. And I spent 10 years and five months in jail. Um, the jail time is a long uh, journey, and uh, because of the time, very quickly, I participated in jail in many food hunger strikes and many different nonviolence struggle in jail. That's how I uh, first got to transformed into um, nonviolence and looking into different strategies of struggle. Uh, of course, I also in jail, like, uh, jail is not a peace academy, just to say, to put people in jail, they will come out as Jesus. That's not the case, just to make it clear. But in my case, I was studying a lot. I also studied Hebrew, English in jail. So my accent has some Middle East and also jail accent. Uh, I participated in many activities in jail with other prisoners and was very active. Um, and uh, one of the main things is really the food hunger strikes. We did it many times. Means you don't eat. For first time was for 13 days. And the last time was 17 days. Me, you drink a lot of water and salt. Uh, that's why it's called in Arabic, and also in Hebrew. 
and of course there are a lot of uh, pictures like to describe the jail experience from violence and torture uh, to reading to connect and meet people and all of that uh, for me like my uh, my journey and my change was very uh, uh, long it's not one thing happened to me and I became a different person uh, like just quickly to finish the five minutes, um, I went out. Two minutes and 30 seconds left. Oh. Okay, so you know, in Middle East, it's hard to follow the rules of five minutes. But anyway, so um, one thing that I realized, like with some other people maybe, that there is no military solution for our conflict. That's one thing that's still uh, relevant for, for, uh, for now. And both peoples like feel at, uh, belonging to this uh, land. We call it in different names, but we belong to the same stones, the same water, uh, in different ways. Of course, while I am aware of the power dynamic uh, that's happening here. And the second thing for me, like I, I wanted to use my own personal story because you know, if you are Palestinian and uh, live under the occupation, you will get some credit if you were in jail or you were fighting for your people <clears throat> and started the after jail time uh, my more like non-violence like uh, activism if you want to say in the Palestinian side and during the second Tifada I also reached out to have Israeli partners because there is a, this thing that's also still relevant that in each side while I'm not comparing who's the bad guy and who's the good one and who's the victim and all of these conversations, um, that we want peace, they don't want peace. <clears throat> and we are the good one, they are the bad one. All of this exists in both sides, uh, as you know. And uh, so I reached out and I started also being open to meet Israelis, which is not also the typical mainstream Palestinian thing to, uh, to do. Um, because I really believe that partnerships and different strategies uh, creating this um, path together with our uh, with people that we live in the same place is important to create this dialogue and uh, share our Jewish um, like stories, narratives, our connection to the place, and to humanize each other. I, for me, still it's very important. I think it's a key for like finding. Uh, agreed solution in generally. So uh, since then, I, <clears throat> I'm very active in this space of what we call a shared spaces of Palestinian Israelis because like in the end, <clears throat> it's very hard for most of the people in, in here, especially in the Palestinian side maybe, to imagine anything different than the conflict. And everybody says our conflict is different, especially that the, the God's hand involved in this conflict uh, either us or them, these ideas ex exist and very strong. So to create like a vision, a narrative that based on hope and uh, not based on us or them, it's a very like non-accepted ideas and like not easy. So it's a dream basically. So for me, I'm acting, uh, <clears throat> I'm very active in these spaces since, uh, since many years for now. Um, and this uh, context, I established and helped establish a few organizations, whether Palestinian one or Palestinian-Israeli ones, like Combatants for Peace, which is uh, basically <coughs> founded by ex-Palestinian uh, and Israeli uh, 
fighters, prisoners, that people that took uh, a very strong active rule in the conflict, and they also reach the point there is no military solution, and they change. Everyone have their story. Um, so in this context, I, I, I also met Yehuda and became also friends. And um, while we don't agree in everything, which is also important to say that, <clears throat> you know this, if you put two Israelis together, you will have million Ukrainians, the Palestinians just the same. I don't uh, like with my family, I have the same arguments with friends. I guess it's really important to agree that we don't agree in everything. We come from different culture, different narrative, different background. Um, but we do agree on respecting each other like a uh, story. Uh, and uh, I don't see a healing for our uh, cause, for our people, liberation alone, for one side alone. It's totally connected in my eyes, in my experience, my personal experience. And I'm uh, optimistic and uh, I know it's gonna be as uh, like you, I can see most people here maybe American. So I, I follow the last leader that died from the civil rights movement in America, John Lewis, I believe his name. Yeah. That really relate to him. I learned this in jail in my own uh, like line that our struggle and our uh, efforts are not like a plan for one year or five years. It's like not daily or weekly, it's like a life. Uh, struggle and so it's gonna take a long time but okay. i rather do this work together thank you thank you thank you thank you okay next up rabbi yehuda hakohen i'm going to give you the same time that we gave our first speaker which i gave a little bit of leeway according to some orders from the top so rabbi hakohen will you give us your story your views and you'll have a little more than eight minutes. Um, I might not use all of that, but uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, first of all, if I have eight minutes, I can take a moment to thank you for having us. Um, thank Suleiman for joining. Thank you, Shana and Rabbi Feldman for hosting and to everyone for joining. Uh, I think this is a great opportunity for, as Shana said, to hear new ideas, new perspectives, and, and not necessarily decide whether you agree or disagree with some of the things you hear from Suleiman or you hear from me tonight, uh, I would actually caution against rushing into a decision on whether or not you agree or disagree with some of the things you hear tonight. I would actually advise people to just make an effort to understand them and really spend the rest of your lives deciding whether you agree or disagree. I, I generally find that to be a more productive way to process new ideas. So as uh, Rabbi Feldman mentioned, I grew up in New York. Uh, both of my parents, uh, neither one of them was born in the United States. I was the first person in my family to be born in the United States. And in fact, neither one of my parents had grandparents who were born in the same countries that they were born in. Uh, meaning that for a long, long time, we were homeless. And the last place we really called home was Jerusalem. And uh, I grew up my teenage years were not spent in the Jewish community so much. I grew up with, you know, other immigrant kids from Albania, Ireland, you know, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, black kids, Italian kids, uh, some Jews as well who happened to be there. Uh, but everything I know about politics, I probably learned, you know, running around with, uh, with petty criminals as a teenager. And at the end of the day, you know, when you look at... Uh, 
the way politics function uh, or diplomacy functions on a global stage, it very much resembles the dynamics between gangs in a neighborhood. And, you know, everything is about resources and respect and who is allied to who. And it, it's almost all the same, at least in the world that exists right now. Uh, as you'll probably see as we get deeper into the evening, I, I do believe that one of the functions of Israel coming back to life after 2,000 years is actually to change the world. Uh, but right now, it, I'm sober enough to, to recognize that we are living in a world of social Darwinism. And uh, it's just a question on you know, how to transition into something better. So I grew up in New York City. Um, my, I, I always grew up very ethnically Jewish, meaning I was never Jewish the way somebody else was a Christian or a Muslim. I was always a Jew the way somebody else was Italian or Puerto Rican or Albanian. And that was kind of my identity growing up. I was pretty like open about it. Uh, whereas the truth is, in, in the world I lived in, a lot of the other Jewish kids were, were actually very closeted. They saw it as a weakness. Uh, if people knew they were Jews, they thought that that would uh, make them easy prey. And, but I was very open about it, and probably most of the fights I got into growing up had something to do with either the fact that I was a Jew or over some girl. And when I was around 20 years old, I joined an organization called the Jewish Defense League, expecting it to kind of be a Jewish gang, not really knowing what I was joining. But uh, while there, I developed a national consciousness. I started reading books. I started getting interested in what was going on in Israel. And ultimately, I felt I really had no choice but to come and participate in what was taking place here. I was actually in my third year, I think, of university, when uh, the, the second intifada broke out, and I just couldn't stomach the idea that just because I'd been born in New York, my job, my function was to earn a college degree, while Jews my age, who were born here, or who were living here, were expected to put on a uniform and pick up a, a weapon and go fight. So because I couldn't really accept that, I did what, at the time, being kind of a newcomer to the Jewish community in a sense. I dropped out of school. I moved home to Israel and I enlisted in the army. Of course, they don't give you a, uh, a uniform and a gun when you get off the plane. There's usually an enlistment period. And uh, I decided to use that time to go and, and study in a yeshiva called the Mohon Meir. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Mohon Meir. Uh, I'm actually a teacher there now, but at the time I was just you know, a student. And, uh, and I was also very politically active, uh, also hunger strikes, you know, similar to Suleiman, although not in jail, um, creating new Jewish communities on different mountaintops in Samaria and Judea, um, did my army service. And at that time, you know, when I came here, I still had a, I'd say a very media driven understanding of the conflict. You know, the media in the United States basically presents this as a conflict between Arabs and Jews. Uh, I'm a Jew, so I came here with the understanding that, you know, I'm coming to fight the Arabs, you know, on behalf of my people. And that was very much my kavanah, that was very much my, like, mentality. I related to the Palestinians as just part of an enemy collective. That was my attitude, I think, uh, certainly before I went into the army, probably during my army service for the most part. Uh, and then... By the time I finished the army, I was already married, and we had decided to, to move 
to a new Jewish neighborhood in uh, East Jerusalem called uh, the neighborhood in Arabic is called the Ras Alamud. Uh, the Jewish community inside Ras Alamud is called the Malay Zetim. And we went and we moved there. Uh, we lived there for four years at the beginning. It's still there, you know, lots of buildings now, uh, much more than when we were there. But one of the things that happened, I would say one of the side effects, obviously, of being there was that we, you know, I, because I refused to just kind of like live behind the wall or, or live behind, you know, armed protection, I wanted, you know, if I'm going to live there, I'm going to walk around, I'm going to interact with people. And I think one of the interesting side effects of living in East Jerusalem, uh, and of course, going there for the purpose of making it Jewish and fortifying it, and, you know, being there to present, to prevent its division, of course, um, I actually got to know Palestinians in the neighborhood. And I got to see uh, some things that didn't really fit into the narrow narrative that I had. And, you know, in the beginning, when you start to see these things, or at least when I started to see these things, I, you know, it was very easy to just kind of attribute all the blame to the Palestinian Authority, to Fatah, um, and not really accept what Israel is contributing uh, to the situation. But as I got to meet more Palestinians, eventually Suleiman uh, and others, I started to, you know, accept more and more things that uh, I guess beforehand I hadn't been ready to fully see. And by the time, by the time we left that neighborhood and moved out to Beit El, I started getting involved in really trying to organize uh, what we, what was called then like alternative uh, peace activism, kind of just trying to bring um, Palestinians and Jews who had been marginalized from the peace process but lived in close proximity to one another in the West Bank to understand each other's stories uh, in a way that uh, that didn't make anyone feel threatened that that their story was being delegitimized. Because I think you know, Suleiman mentioned before narratives. I think narratives are, are very important. I guess for the sake of of tonight's event, I'll just w define what I mean when I say the word narrative. I would say a narrative is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. So when it comes to the last hundred years of conflict in this country, I think there are millions of facts. They meant like millions of facts and both Jews and Palestinians and different groups of Jews and different groups of Palestinians tend to select the facts that support our narrative or support our political objectives or support the outcome we would like to see and kind of discard, like not give too much weight or attention or legitimacy to the facts One that minute. complicate, thank you, that, that complicate our story. And for me, you know, this is really not about one narrative winning out uh, winning out at the expense of the other, but rather uh, finding a way to create a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives. Because one of the things I've come to see over time is that both Palestinians and Israelis are for the most part telling the truth when we speak about ourselves, but are really getting it wrong when we speak about the other. Uh, because I think we both tend to superimpose identities and ideologies and motivations on the other that yeah. have very little to do with how the other in experiences himself. And I think that's one of the major obstacles to actually moving forward. Excellent. Thank you very much.
um, stopping my stopwatch over here. Now, you're going to stay with us, Yehuda, because first question goes to you. And you spoke about this a little bit, but I'll give you the chance to expand. What exactly does alternative peace activism mean? And how does alternative peace activism differ from regular peace activism? Well, I think uh, for, I think most of the audience lives here in the country. So they're probably familiar with the fact that when people speak about peace work, uh, until very recently, it's almost exclusively been associated with what we call the peace industry with NGOs funded by foreign governments to promote a very specific solution. And that solution, of course, is the two-state solution. So one of, the, one of the things that I think made us alternative right off the bat is the fact that the work we were doing was very openly uh, confrontational to the two-state solution. We like, rejected it outright. The people involved in the work we did were Palestinians and Israelis, who were very much sick of hearing about a two-state solution. Uh, also, we're alternative because we uh, don't take money from, the, from foreign interest groups, whether it's you know, European governments, whether it's Christian evangelicals. We're really only interested in support from Jews and Palestinians. That includes you know, Jews and Palestinians on the ground here or diaspora Jews and diaspora Palestinians who really have skin in the game and are not trying to push other agendas that have nothing to do with our aspirations or, or our well-being. Um, and also we, you know, um, believe that Jews and Palestinians should solve our conflict without the involvement of the international community. So th that's the first reason why we're considered alternative is we reject the two-state solution, we don't take funding from foreign groups with, in with special interests, and we circumvent the international community. The second reason we're considered alternative is because we don't believe that peace could be achieved by bringing the westernized diplomats from, you know, Tel Aviv and Rawabi together to sign an American piece of paper. Um, but we're actually interested in bringing to the table those who until now have really been marginalized from the peace process, those who are really living the aspirations of their peoples, people who are really living their national stories to the extent that they're willing to fight and in some cases, kill or die for what they believe to be important to their people's story, uh, those who were considered the extremists. So one of the reasons why we're considered alternative is because we believe the peacemakers have to be those who are the radicals and not the quote-unquote moderates. Um, and the third reason we're considered alternative is because we don't believe that this conflict can be resolved by forcing either side to compromise on things that we believe to be fundamentally important to us, the only way we can solve this conflict is for both peoples to, for the most part, experience ourselves as winners uh, in the subjective stories we're living in, the respective stories we're living in. And that really means, and that really means um, unpacking each narrative and really trying to understand the grievances and aspirations on both sides so we can create a solution here that's experienced as victory, is, is experienced as a happy ending for both of us in each of our narratives. And it can be the same solution, obviously. The ideal is one solution that will be subjectively experienced by both of us as victory, as a happy ending in our respective narratives. Thank you. Now I'm going to have Suleiman. Suleiman, you're gonna have a, one minute to respond to what Rabbi Hakohen has said. 
And then following that, I'll give you your next question. If you have anything that you'd like to say in response. Uh, so, uh, look, it's complicated to like agree on the best like framework strategy of uh, bringing people together. There are different ways, and I, uh, for me, like I, I honestly don't see either or. Like I think that some of the groups, some of the organizations are doing great jobs. Of course, there is like. Uh, some criticism that can be totally legitimate, like the foreign uh, like support of or the conditional support, which is happening a lot in different directions. Uh, yeah, to certain like uh, end goals. Uh, with that said, I think there is like you know like there are also other like kind of activism that's called spiritual activism that bring healing and medicine to use for the Palestinian Israeli like groups and there is the alternative peace activism and there is the normal one. So I, I, for me, I don't really have a yes or no judgment on a, on this big one. Then there are different strategies. Thank you. Now your first question, how would you define the term occupation when describing the situation for Palestinians in the West Bank? So, uh, thank you. Um, so let's say this, I live in Ramallah, in area A, very like personal to make it. My family live in Hizma, which is area C. So I don't know how much the people in the audience here are aware of this division of area B and area C, uh, A, B, C. Area A is controlled by the Palestinian Authority, area B is controlled jointly, and area C is totally controlled by the Israeli uh, army, which is basically most of the land in West Bank with minimum people. Uh, so we are uh, uh, controlled by the Israeli army. Basically, next to Yehuda, where he lives, is the Beit El compound of the army, where basically for me now, for example, even for me, which is I'm privileged compared to other people, I can't go to Jerusalem where I born, basically, without a permit from the army. And this is one example of many everything else, like buildings and movement especially. Uh, so it's totally controlled by the army. Let's say also even uh, we talk about jail and prisoners and hunger strike. Uh, let's imagine Israeli does the same thing as Palestinian in West Bank. They go to do to uh, two different systems. It's not the normal Israeli system. So we are like judged by Israeli military. So basically there is a control of our life, of all aspects of our life including, uh, for example, if I take my village as example, in Area C, my uh, family live uh, in the Palestinian side of the wall. My family's land, half of it inside the Jerusalem side of the wall, which means the land that we used to work in the land, like olive trees and grapes and other things for centuries, because my family has lived here for like, ever they remember, uh, they are not able to uh, work in this land anymore. Well, they just got a permit in uh, October for October, November for the olive harvest. These are like affected by that, not just the human life, which is important. Uh, because, uh, yeah, so basically they need a permit from the Israelis to go to the city, to go to their land, and even to like open a little street to fix the street around the village, for example. 
So it's not easy to live under this uh, military system, basically. You have no rights. You are not considered like a normal human with any rights, like basically. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hakan, you have one minute to respond to what Suleiman said. I think like uh, most issues in this conflict, it's always helpful to define our terms. And one of the things that I noticed early on in doing this work is that words like occupation mean radically different things on the Israeli side and then the Palestinian side. I remember that this isn't a story that involved Suleiman. I was with somebody else, but a Palestinian I had met for the first time and we had met somewhere and uh, we were having a conversation and he kept saying this word occupation over and over. And I was experiencing this word as meaning I don't have a right to live where I live. I don't have a right to to live in, in most of my country or the parts that I consider most important, and then I need to leave. So I asked him, well, what does that word mean? Finally, I said, you know, what, what, when you say the word occupation, what does that mean to you? And he responded by telling me, you know, uh, checkpoints and walls and curfews and restrictions on freedom of movement and basically being forced to live under a military bureaucracy that controls every aspect of life without having any legitimate way to influence that system. And I asked, well, can I live in the boat? And he said, yeah. I even asked, can Israel be sovereign in, in this part of the country? He said, yeah, as long as we're equal. And for me, that was a real paradigm shift because I realized that the word occupation means something so radically different uh, in one community than it does in the other. Thank you. Your second question. How would you say Jews living in the territories are experiencing the status quo? Would you say they identify more as aggressors or victims in this conflict? Three minutes. Well, first of all, um, obviously, you know, the Jews living in the West Bank aren't homogenous, um, you know, e even within communities. But I think I'll, we'll, we could generalize enough. Even if we look at communities as homogenous, it's very clear that Efrat is different from Hebron and uh, Yitzar is different from Ariel and Malé Dumim is different from Betel. You know, we're not homogenous. We're not one group. But uh, if I were to say, if I were to try to identify a basic common denominator, an ideological common denominator that almost every Jew living in the West Bank in the Sumerian Judea regions uh, believes, it's that we're an ancient people from here. We were unjustly displaced against our will by the Roman Empire. We somehow, against all odds, managed to survive 2,000 years and ultimately reunite in the country we had been displaced from. And now the international community wants to displace us again through a two-state solution. And the only method of resistance we've come up with so far is to populate as much of the territories as possible to make removing us impossible, logistically impossible. That's basically what I think most Jews living in the West Bank understand to be going on here. In, in fact, I would say in many ways, Palestinians are very peripheral to that story. Uh, the, the story really is, for us, more about our connection to our land, and Palestinians often just kind of get included in this list of, of obstacles or list of forces trying to remove us from our land or contributing to, you know, the division of our land. Um, obviously, during the Second Intifada, uh, Palestinians took on another identity. In, in many of our minds, and that was one as like the direct antagonist, you know, those who are shooting on the roads or, as Suleiman mentioned, throwing Molotov cocktails or blowing up buses. And then it became more, more of a direct conflict. 
but really, but, but really, um, hold on one second, excuse me, okay? You can't. <laughs> I don't deal with that. <laughs> I apologize, but. Uh, no, that's funny. I just think it's funny. Go ahead. Six of my children are here tonight. Um, I hope my I hope I didn't use up all my time. Nope. No. Okay, so I was saying that for for most of us, the status quo is untenable. Uh, we are in a, we experience ourselves as being in a situation where at any moment the international community, uh, led by the United States, whether it be uh, whether it be Bush or Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump, can attempt to displace us through some to some variation of a two-state plan. And uh, I've personally come to the conclusion that if we want to effectively resist a two-state solution, the only way to do it is for us to unite with Palestinians in a shared struggle against outsiders trying to divide our land. Thank you. Suleiman, you have one minute to respond, if you would like, to what Rabbi Hakon had said, and then I'll give you your next question. I didn't know that I'm muted. You see, Israelis used to mute us, so, okay. <laughs> this is sarcastic, but it's like... Uh, I got you. Uh, yeah, so I, like, in principle, like, in a vision, I do, like, agree with Rabbi Cohen on uh, uniting our peoples in both sides of the story, uh, not necessarily against the outside, rather, like, for for like freedom for everyone from the river to the sea. And if we agree that everybody is equal by born, by, by nature, from the river to the sea, I think the solution will be much easier. And I do believe, I know Hebrew, like, I, like from jail time, I grew up in a family, my father like spoke Hebrew also. And uh, like I know the Palestinian, like more like the story. Hey. I know there's a lot in common uh, among our people, we, fi- we have to find it and strengthen the common and the division and the conflict, which is involved outside forces, obviously. Okay, great. Now I'm going to give you your question. What could Israel do to improve the personal, political, and economic situation for Palestinians in the West Bank? So maybe there is two parts for this question, actually. One part is like more historical and more like deep and uh, real step, which is recognizing that the Palestinian people exist uh, in the first place. Uh, And from there, everything could be possible because recognition, even also in our tradition, like uh, Middle East culture, we have something called sulha, which means reconciliation, that practices in the whole Abrahamic family and the Middle East in generally, uh, it's uh, like a key, like a, a stone, an important stone uh, to start like the conversation about the rest of the story, which is like the trauma, the healing that needed to be done here and the, the suffering of the people here. Um, I, I really don't like the competition among Palestinian Israelis who suffer more, but obviously like... Uh, Living under the occupation means you suffer all your life, like both individually or as a community. And this has to be recognized. Uh, and that's like short term there, you know, like I can count to you, like 
there is a use of security here all the time. We have jokes about it all the time. And because, you know, like when the Israeli army want to allow us to move, they just remove the checkpoint. If they don't want to allow to us, they would put more checkpoints, more walls using the security. I'm not denying the security need, but I guess if we talk about one of the strongest like army and high tech and startup nation and all of that, I think there are a lot of examples of improving the daily life of the Palestinian people to give our people hope because hopelessness is really dangerous for everybody. And one example, like I can give you, many Palestinians live in Jordan. So the only gate we travel to the world out of Corona is the Jordan, uh, the King Hussein Bridge, like uh, to Jordan. There are three, three bridges. We are allowed to use one, the one next to Jericho. So all the West Bank people and these Jerusalem travel from that place. And they basically work uh, certain hours, especially Friday and Saturday. They work just a few hours a day with a lot of uh, traffic and heaviness in checking and searching. Basically, you can fly from Tel Aviv to New York. You said you are from New York. Before me arriving from Ramallah to Amman, and for our people's memory, there is a taxi office and a bus office in East Jerusalem in Ramallah. Still, you can see that. It says Jerusalem Amman uh, or Ramallah Amman. Until now, you can see that. So that's why, like, not people born in the morning thinking about Zionism and Herzl and hating Israelis. It's not that. It's really a lot of people about this, like, making their life really hard. And um, uh, you know, just like a second to give example, that place, for example, just whether we agree or not on Oslo, but one of the things that happened after Oslo, they put Palestinian police in that place. They make a new arrangements for the security checking. And that, that like exit worked 24 hours. So you could go a bit more like simple and easy to Laman at that time to fly to the world or to go to Jordan. So this is one example of millions. I can give you like a lot of things that they can do, like even the permit system now, like that control us by like many examples I can give you about houses and house permits and house demolition and the land and the water resources, which is controlled by Israel also and the West Bank in general yeah. and everything else almost. Okay, great. Thank you. Rabbi Hakohen, I'm not going to give you time to respond any longer, either of you, because we are coming up and I want to save enough time for our, our uh, audience to ask questions. What, in your opinion, are the legitimate boundaries for expressing criticism of Israeli government policies, especially while overseas? Well, I think that, um, you know, Israeli policies are imperfect and uh, imperfect policies should be challenged. I think that one of the mistakes made by the like pro-Israel community, Hasbara industry, however you want to define it, um, on campuses in the United States or on social media, is this drive to present Israel as like the good guy in a children's movie uh, that kind of does no wrong. Uh, even if you look at uh, campus activism on, on most university campuses, almost every politically active group is fighting for some kind of change, fighting to achieve something, fighting to end something, fight, fighting to create some kind of social or political change. The only group that appears to just be defending the reputation and policies of a specific nation state is the pro-Israel community. 
meaning if there was a group of students at Columbia University just fighting to make everybody think that South Korea is a great country with great policies, I think most people would rightly assume that they're probably agents of the South Korean state. And I think that's how a lot of the pro-Israel community really comes across. And even though we might understand it differently because internally we understand all of the dynamics and you know forces at play within the Jewish community, from the outside, that's, I think, how it, for the most part, looks. I'm not interested in defending Israel. I'm interested in making Israel what I think it can be. And that means I think we need to have vision for what we came back for. What did we come back to life for after 2,000 years? What kind of society are we trying to create? What are the values of that society? Uh, How do we express those values in our policies and in our institutions, including how we treat the non-Jew in our society? Like, that's a question we have to ask. I think part of the problem is that we defeated the British. We fought a 10-year war against the British Empire in our land. We defeated them. We took down their flag. And we essentially put our flag on their system without ever going through a very necessary conversation, what I would call the post-colonial conversation, where we sit down and really ask ourselves, what are we trying to create here? You know, what did, what, what did we lose? Um, in what ways have we changed? What is our vision for what this society will be? And I think that if we're able to develop a vision for what Israel should be, and those visions can be diverse, but anyone who's able to develop a, a real vision for what this country could and should be will then be fighting to achieve that vision rather than simply fighting to defend the policies of whatever, you know, government is in power. And I think that's a much yeah. more productive way forward. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Suleiman, I'm going to give you your third question, but I'm going to give you two minutes for it because we're running low on time. And I want to get to the fourth question for each, for each person um, in the debate. What are the roles and responsibilities of the Palestinian Authority in Palestinian life? Yeah. Two minutes. A, okay. That's a question I don't like usually. But uh, since you asked, uh, look, the Palestinian Authority is like extension of the unjust system that in the place. Uh, so this system is not just like, let's say like, this villa and the jungle idea is like in the first place has to change in my eyes. And this has extension. And the extension would be like a bunch of leaders somehow living and benefiting from this system. Not to say that blaming Israel for everything. I'm not from this type of people. I do think as Palestinian, like, um, we have to like be courageous like on self-criticism and really criticize any in uh, any not democratic like uh, leadership or practices in the place. Uh, I don't think the Palestinian leadership currently is representing the hearts of majority of our people. Very simple. Uh, for a million reasons, we can like we have just don't have time to go historically around that. Uh, with that said, I think uh, maybe being under this, under the occupation, under uh, different occupations, different times, is resulting with this um, and with this system that right now, 
I think the Palestinian people also deserve to have freedom and time to deal with our own shit, let's say, with our own problems, which is there here, not far. I live in Ramallah, which is most of our leaders also live in Yeah, so I think, uh, like, as I said before, also, I don't really think in a mindset of victimhood, even though there is a power dynamic here between the both sides and the leadership, because the Palestinian authority is just like a, a local authority. It's not like really a state or anything, you know. So with that said, I do feel and think that we have a lot of power to make change within ourselves and with our neighbors. Thank you. Rabbi Hakon, final question for you. How do you see the situation evolving? And what, in your opinion, are the necessary steps to resolve the conflict? You have two minutes. Uh, wow, that's a big question. How to resolve the conflict. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that most of us on either side are really psychologically in a place where we can productively resolve the conflict. I think that's part of the problem. Right now, Right now, um, I would say the, um, you know, the, the situation is such that no solution can work. The one-state solution can't work. The two-state solution can't work. The status quo can't work because the relationship dynamics are so bad. So I think that the most productive use of my energy is really to try to improve relationship dynamics as best I can in order to create conditions for solutions to be possible. Uh, ultimately, what I'd like to see happen is I would like to see um, Israel start taking responsibility. You know, Suleiman mentioned that the power dynamics really do favor Israel. Uh, he didn't say that right, but he alluded to it many times. And it's true. The power dynamics certainly favor Israel, especially at the moment. And that means it's Israel's responsibility to make the first move towards building trust. Uh, I would like to ultimately see us work towards a one-state reality between the river and the sea. Um, that, ha- But in order to achieve that, I think we really have to ask ourselves some really important questions, like, for example, what makes a nation-state Jewish? Or what makes a na- nation-state democratic? Uh, for me, uh, democracy means empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. So for me, a democratic system isn't necessarily one that just lets me participate in a popularity contest, but one that actually makes me feel empowered to influence the systems that I live under. And Jewish, for me, means a state that expresses my people's identity and values and its policies and institutions. So therefore, the way I envision a one-state solution between the river and the sea is one that Jews, especially those who are most... Um, connected to our history, to our identity, to our culture, to our traditions, etc., really experience as deeply Jewish. Like we see the Jewishness of the state almost everywhere we look. Whereas people who are who have less Jewish literacy, including Jews and non-Jews, barely notice that it's a Jewish state and really just experience it as a democratic state with full equality for everybody. Excellent, thank you. Now, Suleiman, same question for you. Two minutes. How do you see the situation evolving and what, in your opinion, are the necessary steps to resolve the conflict? Well, there's like a two level, like we, there's a level of peoples to peoples, like we do activism, uh, both direct action against the system and also uh, creating a vision for the dream to make people test what it could look like 
and in that sense, in the people-to-people -people level, uh, in my own experience, I'm speaking for with different organizations, uh, there is like power dynamic to be noticed among uh, the people from both sides and to create things together and also to agree and not agree about everything. Um, I think this model that we had in some groups that we that exist around here could be uh, expanded and shared in the wider circles and the people on both sides and the leadership. Uh, coming from, I believe that our like freedom, liberation, and our um, life is really connected in uh, in both sides, and in, in the political level, I would like to see like a systematic change that really, uh, as I said, I see the system set in the place, a villa in a jungle for certain group of people, not for even for all the Israelis, but this is another conversation. Uh, I think this villa have to rebuild by ex exclusive ideas that include uh, people from different backgrounds, like Rabbi Yehuda spoke about the Jewish, uh, like part of it, and there is Christian part of it, there is Muslim part of it, there is non-religious people, there is secular, and all kind. And many of us don't feel part of this system anyway, and don't feel this systems like represent us anyway. We don't choose this system anyway. Nobody asks us. So I think there should be a historical recognition of the existence of the people here, uh, both the one that lived here, like. For Palestinian, where indigenous people lived here for thousands of years, many people have the keys of their houses. Now I'm not talking even about like Haifa and 48, even though I have connection emotionally there, but even about places in West Bank right now, and uh, um, recognizing each other connection here and that we are equal. And from there, I think things could be much easier than we think, and much faster even. Thank you so much to the both of you. Excellent. Um, great job at keeping your thoughts concise, short, dealing with the time restraints. Now, I am going to ask some questions um, to, that, that we have just only 15 minutes left. So if each of you could take the questions as they come to you and to answer them quickly, that would be great. We have a question to Suleiman. Are you in danger for publicly supporting Israel? And I'm not, and I don't know if you do publicly support Israel, but this is the question. Also, is there an increase in Palestinians with your views? Uh, so, let me correct the question a little bit. So, maybe the person put this like maybe didn't understand me correctly. Go ahead. I am supporting like both Palestinians and Israelis to live in peace and security and safety and freedom and equality and justice and in a good life. That's what I'm supporting. I'm not supporting the current Israeli system. It's not. I'm not part of it in the first place. So, just to, I do care about both peoples because I have also. I just want to say a, a side note, um, that creating what Rabbi Cohen spoke about, building relationships and friendships is really important in our context. It's a small place, people know each other. And whenever there is like, a, you know, tense situations, like on the war in Gaza, for example, I would uh, call Rabbi Cohen or he will call me or I have other Israeli friends, we will call each other. This is very important for me and meaningful in our experience. Uh, so that's really important to mention. 
I, 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 so I, and, and generally, look, I'm speaking to you from Ramallah. I don't feel danger, just to say. Of course, my ideas are not mainstream. Neither anybody speak very different from the normal mainstream ideas and both sides will be attacked. That's like the expectation. And that's not really just for Palestinian Israel. If we just get out of this conflict and think about Ireland, both sides, both white Christian Europeans, I know they have a term, uh, you know, working with the enemy because we learn from Mandela, like if you want to change your enemy, work with them or like love your enemy, all these beautiful like values, which I really believe after his, it's not accepted by the majority of the people, obviously. So there is the criticism all the time. Sometimes it goes like, goes ups and downs, you know. I think all these revolutionary ideas we are talking about uh, is worth like the suffering on the criticism and the threat sometimes that some of us get attacked. I know some of my Israeli friends I work with and I have a lot of Israeli friends get attacked. Like, for example, I just give one example from Combatant Service. We do the Israeli-Palestinian Memorial Day. This is like beyond the imagination of any Israeli or Palestinian because we're still in the conflict and uh, our guys got attacked every year, physically even, and online. And the same for me and for my friends here also. You know, like some people uh, like, like don't talk to you anymore or like you lose some people. Um, I don't, I'm like, a, I live my, my belief and I'm not afraid. And also because my background, that's helped me a bit. Uh, I also would say this, while like losing some people and criticism and being under threat sometimes, um, like you became part of this community that we're trying to create this community that's joined, that is uh, including people from both sides. And that's where I see the future, actually. I don't really... Um, like part of Oslo, we said one example, good example about the bridge. Now I'm giving a bad example, which is the separation that Oslo created between the communities here. I think I'm more for engagement uh, between our people. And that's a new community also give, uh, I don't want to say you abandon your old community and you became just part of the new community because we have to keep as a friend said, one leg in reality and one leg in the dream. And I think between these two legs, if I can say so, like we're moving and swimming there. Like, yeah. okay. and it just comes and goes, you know, like I just live with it. I don't hide, like my Facebook is full of, uh, like sometimes Hebrew, or Israelis. I, I got like criticized, like I'm fine with that. Okay, great, thank you. Moving on to the next question, which is also for you. What do you think of the coming peace agreement with the UAE, and do you think it will diminish the prospects for a future peace process with the Palestinians? Is that question for me? Yes. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, so let me say this, the general Palestinian feelings here, I'm not talking about the leadership, that this peace agreement has nothing to do with the Palestinian cause. Um, it's a political game to bypass the Palestinian-Israel conflict and to normalize the relation with the Arab uh, countries. And it has a lot to do with the election in America, basically, more than even here. Um, and uh, the, the, 
the demonstrations against Bibi Netanyahu and all of the political uh, agenda that we all know about. So I, there is no conflict in the first place between the Arab Emirate and Israel anyway. It's not a bordering country. There is no conflict anyway. I don't know yet. Honestly, I would just like, I don't have a strong opinion like to advocate for or against this agreement. Uh, I just don't see that this agreement is really, or let me put it another way. Palestinian people, we talked about more dynamic, but one thing that Palestinian people have really strongly is legitimizing Israel in front of the eyes of millions of people around the world. And without solving the conflict with the Palestinian, I don't think there is a stability or normalization can happen for a long, in the long run. In the first, like not in the first, a first wave of another intifada, all these relations will go away. Like basically, okay. because even if there's agreement with the leaders, there is no really a peace relation with the people. We have example of Egyptian, like I don't know of Egyptian-Israeli relation on the people-to-people level. It's just in the governmental business-wise. With that said, I want to keep myself optimistic. I don't know the intention of the politicians behind it, but maybe this will allow some openness and the new like conversations in Middle East because we want also part of our like work is really I'm part of another group that trying to also making change in Middle East as a big thing also aside of the Palestinian Israeli uh, conflict. Okay, thank you. Rabbi Hakon, um, can you talk about your idea of federation, your idea of government for both Israelis and Palestinians? This must be somebody who knows something about you. No, I, I have no idea for federation. I'm not for a federation. I know that there are people who push that as an alternative solution. It's not a solution that, that I support. Uh, I said before that uh, I think the solution is ultimately one state. Maybe I'll say it more clearly. I think right now what we have is essentially a European-style nation-state with some superficial Jewish decorations. And those Jewish decorations are too Jewish for the Palestinians and not Jewish enough for the Haredim. And I think that the Jewish character of the state of Israel right now is very shallow and hard, and I'm interested in making it soft and deep. Deep enough that Haredim really see the Jewishness in the country on a very, very deep level, soft enough that Palestinians barely notice it. And I think if we can create a one-state solution with a much deeper Jewish character, but a much softer Jewish character, um, that will make most of us feel much more comfortable here. Uh, and Haredim are important, by the way, because they're the fastest growing population between the river and the sea. So when we talk about solutions, we can't just speak about Israeli or Palestinian societies as they exist right now. We have to think about the socio-political trajectories of each community and think about what Israel is going to look like, what Palestinian society is going to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now. Um, but I think what's really important, you know, it, it's not about federation or one state or two states. I think what's really important for us is to think about what's next for Jewish history, right? Like, I, I would argue that Zionism ended 53 years ago, in 1967.
history were the only example I could think of of an ancient people that was essentially destroyed yet managed to come back to life thousands of years later, revive its language, recapture its homeland. I mean, it's an incredible story, but Zionism was only able to liberate us materially. Zionism was a material liberation movement that in many ways behaved like a colonial project, and I think we have to take ownership of that. But now that it succeeded, I think we need to create a post-Zionist Jewish liberation movement that can protect Zionism's positive achievements while cleaning up its mess. And and actually think about what the next goals of Jewish history are. And and for me personally, one of the major objectives of this chapter of our story is reconciling with the Palestinians, actually finding a way to overcome our conflict and moving forward together. And for me, that's a goal of Jewish liberation, just like you know, reviving the Hebrew language or fighting the British Empire or returning to Jerusalem. And I agree with what Suli said before, that Jewish liberation and Palestinian liberation are very much intertwined at this point. You can't have liberation for one people without the other. Thank you. Now, this is going to be our last question, because some of the questions that were asked were very open-ended and we don't have um, so much time. Suleiman, if you're with us, we have a question it was posted back when you were talking about um, when you were talking about the checkpoints and occupation from your viewpoint. Checkpoints were created after nearly 10,000 Jews and Palestinians were killed in the Intifada. There were no checkpoints before that. What is the solution to security without checkpoints? How can Palestinians help the situation take away checkpoints by reducing terrorist threats? Uh, so... As I said before, like the security excuse uh, reason, like to put both of them because both exist, has the same. If we go to South Africa, uh, we don't need to compare. But like any other conflict, to Berlin, like East and West Berlin, to Cyprus, to Ireland, the the security system, you just hear fear from people just the same as we hear here about the security thing. So I don't believe, I'm ex, uh, like a prisoner, so I understand security just, you know, in generally because I was in jail, so I have experience. Just to say my own experience and for the truth, like from my experience, uh, security has been used a lot to dehumanize our life and our people. Um, I don't see a solution, like military solution or a security And for some people, for some Israelis, like, uh, the Palestinian existence is a security threat. That's all. If we change our mindset in this and we recognize there are people here with human rights, uh, things can be uh, changed and also in the security-wise. I, I don't deny the need of security for everybody, for both people. Our security, that you know, like people here in the media, a lot about attacks against Israelis and violence from Palestinian side. But actually, they don't know about the daily, like, insecurity life that we live. Like, you know, the army can enter your house anytime. Like, I go to my family, and I yesterday, like, every day, <laughs> I see the army, like, jeeps going into the village. So, whether the kids throw it, like, you can be attacked any minute. I have to say, if one be asking for... Everybody for both has to be taken into consideration for both sides and both sides 
uh, deserve like safety and security life. Um, and also not to treat the Palestinian cause as a security threat. Uh, because all the security and the military operations prove it's not going to solve this conflict. We are here and people are like not going to leave their their homeland, even if they're like uh, my cousin Jordan say, even if they take Palestine from us, Palestine live in us. So there is no really power force. And as you talk about the Jewish story, 2000 years, all the stories that you know, they you grew up with, the returning home stayed in your dreams, in your prayers. We are just the same and that should be legitimized. Thanks. And that's where the solution for me, not the security eyes. Thank you very much. Uh, Yehuda has one quick comment that he would like to make before I wrap this session up. Uh, Yehuda, please give us your final word. You have one minute. Okay, no, my, my, my final word is that if people are interested in hearing more of these ideas and engaging more in this conversation, we have an, uh, I, I represent the Vision Movement. We have an online magazine, visionmag.org, Vision Magazine, visionmag.org, podcast, etc. Feel free to come check us out. In terms of the security question, look, the truth is we, we shouldn't pretend there's no security threat. We've been killing each other for 100 years. I would say this conflict started in 1920. Uh, I think we were, we're, we're, it's naive to not recognize the hand that the British had in pushing us into conflict or the hand that some foreign governments today have in pushing us into conflict. It's not just Jews versus Palestinians. There are, you know, ironically, the, those who are trusted to broker peace are often the ones who are selling us all weapons and making money from this conflict. So I think we have to get really uh, deeper in our analysis as to what's going on here. But one thing for sure is that part of Jewish liberation is realizing that um, security can't be solved through colonial structures. Checkpoints, walls, things like this, are these are features of colonial systems. We're not here to be a colonial power. We're here to be the children of Israel back in our land. And if we have beef, fight, right? If you have an enemy, you can make your enemy scared of you, but don't resort to being the Americans in Afghanistan or the French in Algeria. That's not who we came back to life to be. Thank you so much. Thank you both for giving us your sincerest views and for respecting the opinion of the other, for having a vision of the future that is not what we're seeing around us today. It takes a lot of, in, of uh, vision to have the vision. It takes a lot of creativity. It takes a lot of forward thinking, and it takes a lot of brain power just to make up an idea and to see a reality that is not represented around you when you walk out of your door. So thank you. Um, Suleiman says that uh, you're welcome to reach out to him. And we are going to have the audio of tonight's session posted on the Jewish Matters podcast that's available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. I also run a podcast called the Israel Daily News Podcast in which I do a headline wrap of the Israel news. I do about five stories in the morning. I end each podcast with a song from an up-and-coming Israeli or Palestinian or Arab uh, musician or artist. Sometimes I use international artists as well. And uh, on Thursdays, I produce a show with an investigation, a special investigation, something that is regarded 
in Israeli politics or culture. So we had a question, where will the recording of tonight's session be? It will be on the Jewish Matters podcast, which is available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Everyone, thanks so much. If you would like to be put on the mailing list to learn more about events that we have or to find out when we're going to be doing the Sunset Series and who is speaking for us, you can put your email address in the chat and I will add it to our mailing list. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, Suleiman, for joining us very much. Thank you. Thank you, Yehuda, for arranging it and for being with us as well. And I hope this has given uh, something to, for people to think about, maybe some new ideas, new ways of approaching things. And I, I encourage everyone to get engaged and get involved because uh, we're two peoples who need to learn how to, uh, how to live next to each other. And, uh, and this is the way it can start. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Shannon. Have a good evening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.